Hi folks, thanks for joining us. It's uh, great to have you with us if you're connecting uh, online. Well, you are connecting online uh, if you're watching this, so it's great to have you with us. Um, we're going to have a look at an amazing piece of scripture today, a very important part of the second book of Samuel. We've been looking, of course, at the life of David. And the, the section that we're going to look at today is really a high point in the story. It's a point that is actually crucial to the unfolding story of the Bible, the story, of course, that we are part of. Uh, but it's actually one <clears throat> that is less known, I think, and less understood than it should be. I'm talking about God's covenant with David to establish an everlasting dynasty beginning with him. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, the reason this is less this is a less conspicuous moment in the biblical history is because we tend to find this I think harder to connect with. It doesn't seem to apply to us. It seems a bit archaic. At surface level, it's about an ancient royal dynasty. You know, what has this got to do with us? Now, many Christians, of course, will be aware that this is the dynasty into which Jesus Christ is born, into which, into which he is incarnate. So there's perhaps some sense of significance for you in this. But even this, I think, isn't really understood well. I mean, why does it matter what family line Jesus belong to? And what does that change? How does that apply to us? Those of you who are new to the faith or just exploring faith might find this particularly esoteric uh, and irrelevant. What has this got to do with my life today? Well, today I want to say to you all, this is of enormous importance, enormous importance. This applies deeply to us all. What I'm going to talk about today will not, will not only change your life, but will change the lives of generations after you if you really take this message to heart. Part of the reason why I think we don't get this in our day is because as a broad cultural fact, we are inhibited by a very individualistic way of thinking. We tend to see ourselves as isolated and autonomous units. Now, not only has this been debunked scientifically, but it also goes against the biblical view of humanity. Now, science tells us it's not the way we are. We've actually been described as hyper-social animals by scientists. Now, the Bible tells us it's not the way that we were meant to be. But here's the thing. It is the way we tend to want to be. We tend to want to be independent and autonomous. Each like a God ruling our own little world. Actually, that's what the Bible calls sin. According to the Bible, we were made to be children of God, united in one family under God. But since we rejected God, we've become fragmented from each other because we lost the ground of our connection with each other. You see, because we simply can't live alone. We then separated into mutually conflicting identity groups, and they might be nations or, or otherwise. And this is actually depicted in Genesis chapter 11, in the building of the Tower of Babel, which was really a symbol of human rebellion against God. The message of that story is that rebellion leads to fragmentation. Now, a central part of this is a really important uh, part of our Christian belief. A central part, the central part of God's redemptive plan for the world is the reconstitution of the family of God. 
To become who we were created to be, we must be reconciled with God and rediscover ourselves as God's children. And the only way to become a child of God is to join the family of God. Now, that might seem to you to be an odd way around to put it. You might think that it's actually the other way around. Surely we become part of the family of God when we become God's children. And that's kind of true. <laughs> but I'm putting this, that, I'm putting this the other way uh, because I think this is both uh, the most biblical and logical way to put it, that we become children of God by becoming part of the family of God. Now, when I was born, I was born into a family, my parents. The family came first and I was born into that family. Logically, the family comes first and the children are born into the family. Think alternatively of a tree. Let's call it a family tree. Well, branches come from the tree, not the other way around. And if a branch is grafted into the tree, we don't say that the tree is grafted into the branch. And it's the same with us as Christians. We're children of God because we've been grafted into God's family. And so we're, we're kind of defined by that grafting in. And the, actually, the Bible uses this very metaphor. To be a Christian is to be adopted into God's family. The family comes first. Just like we're all born into a family that comes first. The family comes first and our identity is derived from the family. So again, the part gains its identity from the whole. Now the only one, the only one who is not identified by being part of something bigger, of course, is God. Only God has a self-sufficient identity. Now the reason why we're so prone to individualism is because we kind of want to be God. That's the original sin, isn't it? That, you know, then you will be like God. It's our God complex that causes us in very irrational fashion to want to isolate ourselves. Well, it's illogical. It's unnatural. It's highly dysfunctional and I have to say abjectly sinful. But let me be clear, I'm talking here about individualism, not individuality. Individualism is the idea that I have a self-sufficient identity, that I am an independent and autonomous unit. This actually tends to negate our individuality, that is our uniqueness. See, individualism has all people competing essentially to be just the same thing. It's only when we see ourselves each as part of a whole that we can understand and appreciate our differences by the way we complement each other. Paul, of course, highlights this point when he speaks of the family of God, the church as the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, for example. And he highlights the significance of diversity. Okay, now back to God's covenant with David. That's important background. We kind of have to understand that. Uh, and in a biblical world, I wouldn't have had to have explained that, but we kind of need that as a basic background understanding. Now, what's happening here in God's covenant with David is that he's constituting a whole, a family, to which he is going to be committed forever. God has already committed himself to the children of Abraham by this point, 
But with each generation, God identifies a, ma- a main family line down through which the specific promise flows. This is what we see in the biblical story beginning from Abraham. Now, the other branches, of course, are blessed, but there is always the identification of a specific branch as we begin from Abraham going right through to David and beyond. There's always this identification of a specific branch that's going to become the trunk. So let me give you an example. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Now, while God blessed Ishmael as he promised, Isaac becomes the trunk. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, Esau was blessed in the end, but Jacob becomes the trunk. And as this grows forward, it's all moving towards something. See, eventually this process will lead to the trunk into which all peoples of all nations will be grafted, that is Jesus Christ. It kind of sounds tribal at first, but the goal is universal. Now, the significance, this is a little technical, but hang on, uh, hang in with me here, because I think this is really important. This is actually really important moment, uh, the Davidic covenant, for us to understand. So this is why I'm explaining it to you. The significance of, the, of God's covenant with David is that David and his descendants are now going to become the main trunk. But in a new and significant sense, a sense that anticipates where all this is going. It isn't just the genealogical children of David that are going to be blessed, but everyone who is under his rule as king, no matter who they are, even if they're foreigners. If they submit to David's rule, then it's like grafting yourself into a trunk to which God is committed forever. Now, this is kind of preparing the way for Jesus because that's going to exactly be the way it is with Jesus Christ. Right, let's finally look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. So the key issue here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as we're going to see, is the issue of building a house for God. King David wants to build a temple uh, that is a house or habitation for God to dwell in to replace the tabernacle tent. But God uses this occasion to set David and us straight about something. God does want a habitation in the world, but this is not something that we build for God. It is something that God builds for us. Or should I say more accurately, it is something that God builds us into. Here it is, 2 Samuel chapter 7. From verse 1, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now, I will make your name great, like the the names of the greatest men on earth. Remember the promise to Abraham, I will make your name great. This is talking about a great role, okay? When we read about 
you know, your name, it's not about fame, it's not just about fame, it's about a great role, right? This is the trunk. Uh, I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. It's often, the prophets often speak of Israel being planted like a vine, right? Uh, Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I'll also give you rest from all your enemies. Now, listen to this. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one to build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So notice, I'm going to build you a house and my house will come from in that way. So verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Well, I'll say something about that in a moment. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. You want to put a big circle around that in your Bible, underline it like that. This is a high point. of Everything after this is going to refer back to this Davidic covenant. Okay, So it's going to really set the agenda for things. It's a very key promise of God. Okay, so you get the gist of this. David wants to build a house for God. But God uses this occasion to clarify something. That is, we don't build a house for God. He builds us into a house. God inhabits people. I've said that before, but let me add this in the light of this. God inhabits people, but not in an individualistic way. God commits himself to family to a people who are branches from the trunk or branches of branches from the trunk. Now, the point here is that in continuity with the refining process I described before, you know, constantly redefining, defining who the trunk is, David now becomes the trunk. So David's family line is going to become the trunk. Whoever grafts themselves into this trunk will be blessed by God. And the blessing is that when you graft yourself into the trunk, God will inhabit your family line. This is a very key point that I want to make today. God will inhabit not only your life, God will inhabit your family line. Because the promise, as Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.39, because the promise is not just to you. The promise is to you and your children. The family itself becomes the house of God, the habitation of God. The family or dynasty of David becomes symbolic of this principle because eventually God would literally inhabit this family line. That is, he would become incarnate as a descendant of David. And this, of course, is Jesus Christ, who was called the son of David. And this is where we arrive at the ultimate trunk, the final, that, you know, that final trunk that is great enough to sustain the whole world and calls people everywhere, all people everywhere, to graft themselves into this trunk. And when we graft ourselves into Jesus, then the blessing 
that Jesus earned through his life and death, death flows to you and your family. And that blessing is the blessing of God himself. That is the spirit of God who will, through Jesus Christ, and I'll say it again, who will inhabit your family line. Now, this doesn't mean that your children will automatically going to choose to give their lives to Christ. But it does mean that they are, in a very special sense, experiencing God's presence, not just in you, but in themselves, in a sense. Now, because of the power of Jesus, when you graft yourself into him, this blessing will not abate no matter how many generations forsake God. This was already the case with the promise to Abraham and to Jacob. Even now, God is still committed to the Jewish people. This is not to advocate a kind of positive racism or say anything about the political nation of Israel today. That's another question. But God's covenant with his people, Israel, was a, an eternal one. God does not show partiality on the basis of race or nation, but he is faithful to his promise with people and with families. That's the point. The individuals within each given generation may not respond to the opportunities that this presents, but the blessing is there. Sometimes it can be like an unopened gift. Right? The gift is there, but it's up to each generation to open it for themselves. Now, if this is the case with all those connected with Abraham and with Jacob, how much more so those who are grafted in to Christ? When you graft your life into Christ, your family becomes a habitation of God and a powerful blessing flows down through your family line and this will never abate. It's interesting, we found out just recently, I mean, I'm, I, I thought I was the first sort of generation Christian uh, in my family. I think my mum uh, thought, uh, thought that too. We became Christians around the same time. But we discovered actually there are actually some really committed Christians back there Right? And then there probably was before then. Maybe that's why, right? Because the, the promise flows through. This is the power of the blessing of Jesus. This is why your decision for Jesus is life-changing, not just for you, but for your children and their children after them. You bring something powerful into your family line. And you yourself are probably a product of someone before you who committed your family line to Christ. Okay, but let's think about what this blessing looks like. What does this, uh, let's call it a genealogical blessing, what does this actually look like? Now, I've already said that it doesn't mean that our children and their descendants will automatically choose to follow Jesus. But I think it does mean that they carry a special sense of God's blessing. This does not mean, however that everything will always go well for them. In fact, it may be the contrary. God's commitment to us and our children can mean that God will not let us or our children stray happily away from him. It may mean that God will continually cause us to crash and burn in order to bring us to our senses onto the right path. Anyone with 
rebellious children probably knows what this process actually looks like. This is, after all, what God promised David about his offspring. Second, here it is again. 2 Samuel 7, verse 14 and 15. I will be his father, speaking of David's offspring, who are going to carry this promise. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. This is the promise. God is saying, I am committed. I am committed to your children. I will chase them down. When they go astray, I'll scatter barbs along the road to flatten their tires. And that can be, you know, that can feel like a bad thing. But this is actually, we, we can have hope in this. This is, the, this is a sign of God's devotion to us and faithfulness to his promise. All this is because, as he says, because my love will never be taken away from them. This is the family blessing. Folks, I believe that we need to believe for this. We need to believe for this. Again, it doesn't happen automatically. Yes, individuals need to make their their own choices. But again, God does not operate individualistically. We can make choices too on behalf of others, as it were, vicariously. We can intercede for others to pray on their behalf. And true effective intercession is always that which aligns with God's express will. And this is God's will, to bless you and your children. We need to believe for that, folks. God is committed to this. So parents, grandparents, pray for those kids. Pray for the children of the house. I believe this is going to be the first fruits. I believe this is the first fruits of the in-gathering that God wants to bring about. Well, that's my first point of application. But secondly, this is important. Make sure that you graft yourself and your family into the body of Christ. Just as individuals are defined in relation to families, so also individual families are defined in relation to the family of God family of God is just another way of saying the church. Jesus said this in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This remaining in Jesus, remember, isn't an individualistic thing. It's not just between you and Jesus. The vine throughout the Old Testament was a symbol of God's covenant people. And here Jesus is speaking about his family, his church. Make sure you are grafted into Jesus, not just in a mystical and individualistic way, but concretely and practically in terms of your family being a part of the greater spiritual family. That's why this actually applies equally to those who may not have a natural family in in that sense. I mean, the Apostle Paul didn't have 
uh, and I mean, he didn't have children, right? he didn't have a natural family in that sense. He actually wanted to give precedence to building the spiritual family, the church, which he understood as the household of God. So this is for everyone. God is building a house. He is building us into a house. He's building us into a house that will become a habitation of his spirit. And he wants to create houses, that is families, that will become multi-generational habitations of the Holy Spirit. Through Christ and practically through the body of Christ, God promises us as he promised David. And let me, let me paraphrase this for general application to us. This is God's promise to David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, God says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his, her authority in Christ so that he, she will build an even greater house for my name. I will be his, her father, and he, she will be my son, daughter. When he or she goes astray, I will scatter barbs on the road before him or her to turn him or her back to me. Be assured of this. My love will never be taken away from him or her. This house and this kingdom that I am building you into will endure before me forever. And my throne will always remain in the house that I build here. That's the promise of God. Let's believe for that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we commit ourselves to you. We recommit ourselves to you. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Father, we commit ourselves to you and our households and our church. Father, would you bless us richly, first and foremost with yourself, would you inhabit our lives? Would you inhabit our families? And let the power of this blessing flow. And Lord, would you bring back the lost children? Would you bring back the lost children, the children of the house, and graft them in and let them know the power of your love and blessing and grace that is given in Jesus' name. Amen.